Good morning. How are you guys doing? Um, well, as Brian said, uh, I'm just going to pull this up real quick. As Brian said, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm a pastoral intern uh, here at Church 21 and uh, grew up in, um, in Texas. So about six months ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, Megan, um, we packed up everything and moved to Canada um, because we felt God was calling us here. Uh, I am originally from Toronto, um, just outside of Toronto, um, and uh, moved down to Texas when I was seven years old, um, wasn't a Christian, um, and then heard the gospel in high school. It changed everything, um, and there's a long amount of time in between that, but God has just been uh, continually taking that gospel and just pushing it more into my life and showing me more and more of how good it is. Uh, my wife has a similar story, and uh, we met working at a camp in Texas, a Christian summer camp, um, and I just saw uh, this girl who uh, was just loving on these counselors that she was leading, um, showing them the love of Christ and loving these kids so well that she was leading, um, and just saw her character and said, I want her. Um, I want to be with this girl. Um, and so somehow I convinced her to marry me, and she followed me up to Canada. Um, we felt that the Lord was leading us here. Um, and so we're just excited to be here at Church 21, serving with you, uh, humbled to be worshiping with you every week. Um, and I'm just pumped to get to preach uh, this morning. And so if you've been with us, uh, the past few weeks we've been in a series called Him and Her. Um, and what we've been looking at is um, topics like um, what, what does God say about being a human? What does it mean uh, biblically to be human? Uh, what does it mean biblically to be a man? Uh, what does God say about biblical womanhood? And what, does God have anything that he would say about marriage, singleness, um, transgenderism, homosexuality? We've been getting in some of these uh, pretty heavy topics and uh, and I'm just thankful that we're at a church where our leaders, like, they, they want to dig into these things. Because um, these are questions we're asking, right? Um, these, in your daily life, if, whether you're a Christian or you're not, you, there's, you're going to come up against these decisions, and you've got to know what you think. And so I'm thankful, um, just to say that, just to honor our leaders uh, for the fact that they're going into these things, and they're talking about them, um, and showing us that the Bible actually does have something to say. Uh, this week, we're going to be uh, taking a step back from that series, and we're just going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1. Um, and, uh, and so as we go into this, what we're going to be looking at is uh, the righteous life. So if you're a, a note taker, you, you want a little title to put on it, the righteous life is what we're looking at um, in Psalm chapter 1. Um, and so I want to ask you to imagine something for a second. Um, I don't know what you do on a regular basis. I don't know what, if you, if you work, if you're a student you stay at home, um, what that looks like. But I just want you to imagine that you just got a job as a recruiter uh, for a staffing firm. Um, and you go to your first day on the job, and you're getting trained on how to do this job. Maybe, you, maybe you're in here and you really are a recruiter. That's awesome. Um, but at, at this staffing firm, what you find out is common practice um, is that uh, often what recruiters at, at this particular staffing firm you're working at will do, um, not all recruiters out there, uh, will uh, make job descriptions and post them on job boards like Indeed or Monster. I don't know if those exist in Canada, but they do in the States. But a job board, and you post these job descriptions for jobs that don't actually exist yet. Um, and the reason you do this is that if you can get more interviews, then you can build your candidate pool, and that, is, that goes well for you in your business. Not only does it go well for you on metrics, but it actually, when, when a job does come up, uh, you, can, you can reach into that candidate pool of people you've interviewed, uh, and you can get them the job quicker, because you don't have to initiate the interview. Um, th th this is how you justify it. Um, but when you put it out there, you don't put it out there as this is a potential job. You put it out there as this is a job. And when you call, uh, you interview the person without telling them up front uh, that this interview is going to be for a job that doesn't yet exist. Um, so this, this person gives you their time, uh, their valuable time. They get their hopes up about this position that may or may not exist. I want to ask this question to you. Is that wrong? Or is that just business? Is that wrong or is that just the way it is and that's just good business practice? Um, whether you're a student or a parent or you're in business, 
uh, whether you are a uh, engineer, whatever you do with your time, every single day you're faced with countless decisions um, between uh, right and wrong. Um, you're Counts, uh, you have countless decisions where you have to decide between two options. And, and I guess the question really is, what is uh, the determining factor of your decisions? Is it moral uh, or is it pragmatic? Uh, it's, it's not a matter of if it's right for you or if it's wrong, or it's not a matter of if it's right or if it's wrong, but is it right for you? Is it wrong for you? Does it ultimately make you happy? Um, is, is that your determining factor for your decisions? And maybe, does it make me happy without making, keeping other people from being happy? Is, is that the framework by which you make your decisions? Is morality, um, this idea of right and wrong, is this just a social construct? Um, or do you believe that morality is uh, the, the construct or the, the constructing force of a healthy society? Um, which one of these is your worldview, if one of these. Um, there is a, uh, a guy that I follow on Instagram. He used to be a Christian evangelical singer-songwriter, um, and he's walked away from evangelical Christianity. He's walked away from Christianity, it seems, altogether. And this is something that he said this week as he, uh, he shared on Instagram a tweet that he had also shared on Twitter. Uh, he said this, I am not ex-evangelical. I'm not ex-anything. I am pro-freedom of thought, pro-personal health and responsibility, pro-human dignity, empowerment, and joy. I'd rather be defined by where I'm going than by where I've left. What this singer-songwriter is saying in this is that Christianity is actually opposed to all of these things, including our joy and uh, human well-being. And this is really... Uh, a large secular view uh, that's out there. The, the view that morality uh, is this social construct and that the idea of objective truth, an objective right and objective wrong, things that are always right and always wrong, uh, rooted in the Bible is actually the enemy of our human flourishing. It's actually the enemy of our happiness. Maybe you're in here and, and you're like, yes, amen. That's what I believe. Um, I, I, that's where I land. I, I'm, I'm just here. I came here kind of reluctantly and I don't really believe in that. Or I'm hoping that maybe there's a church that doesn't believe that. And I just want to say to you, uh, if that's you and you're here, like I'm literally just so happy that you're here with us. Um, uh, I hope that you feel welcomed. I hope that you uh, have some of your questions answered today. Um, but uh, I don't see you as an enemy. I just want you to know that, and I want to acknowledge that you might be in this room, and that that's amazing. Like we, that's that's one of the reasons uh, that that we do church to get that we gather as the church um, is to proclaim uh, this good news. But so. so in society, there may be this problem uh, with this idea of morality, and, and, and that's the issue, is that th there's, there's no such thing as morality as the belief, right? But sometimes Christians also have a hard time with talking about morality. Um, sometimes in the church, uh, we start to maybe raise a red flag if we hear too much talk about uh, things like the righteous life, right? Um, because we believe as Christians that our righteousness, that we're, we're going to get to this more and unpack it, but that we are uh, accepted by God based on Jesus and what he did, that, that we have a, a religion that is based on grace, um, our it's a based on relationship with God, and it's glorious. And so sometimes as Christians, when we've made this switch to it's not what I do uh, that saves me, but Jesus saves me, we struggle with, okay, well then how do I think rightly about righteousness? How do I think rightly about these moral decisions? What should motivate me? And so whether you're in the camp that doesn't even believe that righteousness is a thing or whether you're in the camp that uh, believes uh, that you're accepted by grace, which, amen, yes, you are, um, but doesn't quite know how to think about righteousness, um, this is what I want to, to speak to you today about from Psalm chapter 1. I want to show you this in Psalm chapter 1, and uh, it can be summed up in this one sentence. Uh, the righteous life 
is the only way to the lasting happiness you were made for. This is what we're going to see in Psalm chapter 1, that the righteous life is the only way to the lasting happiness that you were made for. Uh, I want to show you that this is true, and then I want to show you how to pursue it. Um, and, and that's a big task, but I think our, our text today uh, meets the challenge. Um, as we open God's word, um, I am just excited to show you what we find there. So if, if, if I could just ask, could we just pray one more time, if you would just bow your heads with me um, as we jump into this text. And this is what I want to ask. I want to ask that you would ask the Lord um, to show you the realities uh, of his word, that he would speak to you, because my words are worthless if they're not his. So just in, in the quiet of your own mind, if you just ask him to speak to you. And then if you just ask that he would speak through me, that nothing I say would be opposed to his word, and anything that might be would just not be remembered. Father God, um, I need your help. I can't uh, proclaim your word faithfully or do anything right apart from you and uh, the grace that is in Jesus. So I just ask for you to speak to us, and I thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so as we jump into this idea, the, the righteous life is the only way to the lasting happiness that you were made for. Um, before we even really dig into this, we need to deal with um, two questions, um, one from the non-Christian uh, and one from the Christian. So the, the non-Christian person um, may, not necessarily, but may not believe that righteousness is even a real category, right? That's what we said, that this is a, a social construct. It doesn't exist, um, and, uh, and we should just throw away these categories. Um, and, and so I want to ask this question, does righteousness even exist? And, and I want to challenge you with the fact that I don't think that you really believe that it doesn't. If I could be so bold to say, I think you deeply believe in objective moral truth. Uh, if I were to come off this stage um, and just punch someone in the face, most of us in this room, most of us, would take issue with that, not merely on political grounds. By the way, I'm not going to do that. Um, but not merely on political grounds, that that's not legal. You can't do that. Not even merely on um, hedonistic grounds of seeking pleasure, like your fist is not pleasurable as it's hitting me in the face. That's not going to be the deepest core problem. Those things are real. Those are real issues. But most of us are going to say, that's not right. You can't just walk down there and punch someone in the face for no reason. That is objectively wrong. Now, you might be the one person in this room who's like, that would just be awesome. Uh, I just watched Fight Club, and I just really would love to get punched in the face. We can talk about that after. I'm not going to punch you in the face. Um, but for the, the majority, majority of us, we draw the line there. Now, now, if that's not where you draw the line, um, I am convinced uh, that if we were to sit down and talk and I were to ask you questions and probe a little bit, eventually we would find that there is somewhere that you draw the line and you say, yes, that is just wrong. No matter what country you're in, no matter what time in history, this is wrong. And so maybe you know what that line is for you and I'd encourage you to think about what is that line. We all have the line. We all draw the line. It's just a question of where we draw it and what we base it on. And here's the thing. We all believe in the line, but only some of us have an actual rational ground for believing in that line. Wherever we draw it, only some of us have an actual rational ground for drawing that line and believing that it exists. Here's what I mean by that. So imagine that tomorrow uh, you wake up and you're the only person left on the planet Earth. Um, and somehow you know that you're the only person left. And for whatever reason, you need to get to Toronto. Uh, maybe there's something there. There's uh, the, last, uh, the last medicine that's going to save you from joining the rest of uh, the dead world uh, is in Toronto. And you need to get there. Um, and guess what? All cars are free game because you're the only person left on the planet. You know what you're not going to do on your way to Toronto? You're not going to drive the speed limit. You know what you're not going to do on your way out of Montreal? 
you're not going to stop at red lights. You're definitely not going to wait to turn right at a red light anymore. Uh, praise the Lord. Um, and as, uh, but, but here's the, the deal. The, the reason you're not going to do that is because uh, laws don't have authority uh, unless there is someone giving the law who has living authority. Uh, for a law to exist, there needs to be a living authority that is in place. If, if the government's dead, if everyone's dead, there's no more law. Uh, and you have no reason that you need to submit to those laws. Well, isn't it interesting that we all believe that there is an objective line somewhere that we would draw, and yet we don't all believe that there is a law giver? We, we all believe that somewhere there's somewhere to draw the line, but the line doesn't really exist unless there's somebody giving that line by which we differentiate between right and wrong. You can't believe in objective right and wrong without objective authority that's external to you. And so this objective authority that's external to you is what the Christian worldview, uh, it's the one the Christians call God. We all believe there's a line. Uh, it's just a matter of where we draw it and where the authority for that line is based. And so uh, I, I, would, I would encourage you to open yourself to the possibility as we go into the rest of this sermon uh, that righteousness really exists. Um, that, that maybe there's something to the fact that deep down, built into you, it seems, is this sense of the existence of right and wrong. Uh, maybe somebody put that there. That's the first question. The second question we got to ask, and this is going to bring us into the text, uh, is, is happiness a biblical pursuit? Uh, Blaise uh, Pascal famously said this, uh, all men seek happiness. Uh, this is without exception. Whatever means they employ, they all to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different view. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. We do what we desire. Given the options that we have, given the choices laid in front of us, we pick the thing that we desire most. And, and, and when we say we pick the thing we desire, it means we're pursuing the thing that's going to bring us happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. Uh, the question isn't, uh, is happiness, uh, happiness is a human thing. It's, it's not simply a, a matter of our sinful nature, but happiness is just what it means to be a being, the pursuit of happiness. You can't escape it. It is every second of every day. Uh, that's what Blaise Pascal is saying. But what does our text say, right? What does the Bible say? Does, does the Bible agree with Blaise Pascal? Does it say that this is just human? And, and more so, is it, if it's human, is it just sinful nature? Or is it actually biblically warranted as a good thing? Uh, as we look at our text, let's just read verse 1. Um, together. It says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is the man. Uh, the word blessed is a word we're probably pretty familiar with. If uh, you've ever been around someone who sneezed, uh, you've probably heard someone say, bless you. Um, although I heard they don't do that in Quebec. Is that true? I don't know. Okay, good. Um, so I'll bless you if you sneeze. Anyway, uh, this idea of blessing is something we're familiar with. It's, it's this idea of you're wishing well for someone, right? Would, would good happen to you? But, but more precisely in, in the language of uh, Hebrew that this was written, blessing has this connotation of happiness. Uh, you could equally translate, and there are translations of these scriptures that say, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and a lot of times in church, um, in churches around the world, um, it's become popular to kind of distinguish happiness from joy um, and say that joy is this lasting thing that we can have even in the midst of sorrow, which is beautifully true. But to kind of distinguish that and make happiness out to be this kind of uh, frilly, frothy, uh, 
fickle, I'm sorry for all of the alliteration, uh, things, right? Uh, that it's this, this thing that just kind of like comes for a second and then it passes. Well, the Bible doesn't differentiate between happiness and joy in that way. Uh, if there is a differentiation between those two terms, happiness would be like maybe the state of goodness in your life, that the happiness of your life is like the, uh, the overarching goodness and then joy is the internal experience of that. Maybe that's a valid way to differentiate between the two. Uh, but by and large, there's this blending of this idea of happiness and joy uh, biblically. And so uh, the psalmist says, from the get-go, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Uh, and he starts with this idea of blessing, of happiness. But that's not it. That's not, it doesn't just stop there. Uh, what's so surprising uh, is the way that he contrasts the wicked life uh, and the, the righteous man. Uh, you would expect him to say, let's, let's read verse two real quick. Um, he says, but his... But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, this is fascinating. What you would expect him to say, what I would expect him to say, uh, if I hadn't read it, was, uh, blessed is the man who does all these things, and, uh, but he walks in the counsel of the just. He stands in the way of the righteous. He sits in the seat of encouragers, but that's not what he says. What does he say? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The issue of sin is not in the walking, it's not in the standing, it's not in the sitting. It's deeper. It's in the heart. It's in the desires. It's in the delights. So righteousness is this thing that dwells in the heart. And the Bible says that across from beginning to end, that God doesn't look at the outward actions of man. He looks at the heart. Righteousness at its core happens in the heart. And it has everything to do with delight. It has everything to do with happiness. The Bible's shameless in celebrating the happiness of the righteous life. And we should be too. We shouldn't get worried about talking about happiness uh, in the church, uh, the, the big, here's one of the reasons. The biggest lie uh, out there, or, or maybe let's just say the oldest lie out there, uh, is that God is against your happiness. This is what the culture by and large believes. This is uh, why people throw away the Bible and, and turn away because they think, well, that's an old, ancient, restrictive faith, and all it wants to do is restrict my happiness. And that's literally the oldest lie in the book. If you go to Genesis chapter uh, three, you see this story of Adam and Eve and God made them and it was good and they had a flourishing life and then the serpent Satan comes in and tells them this lie and says, hey, God told you not to eat from that tree or you would die and really God's lying to you. He doesn't want you to have the good you could have if you eat of that tree. You're not gonna die you're going to know good and evil in such a way uh, that you become like him. God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want your good. God doesn't want your happiness. It's the oldest lie in the book. Um, but the truth is that God is radically for our happiness. There is a happiness that we were made for. It's a biblical pursuit. Uh, so why? Why is the righteous life the only way to the lasting happiness that you were made for. I want to give you three reasons uh, as we continue in our text. This is the first reason. The happiness of the righteous life, this is actually out of order, so there's one missing, but the happiness of the righteous life is unique. So you got a sneak preview of the next one. The happiness of the righteous life is unique. If Adam and Eve's uh, problem wasn't that they pursued happiness, what was it? It was not the pursuit of happiness that was their sin, it was where they pursued happiness. And this is important. Uh, we are not made, uh, the, when I say the happiness you were made for, we were not made for an indiscriminate happiness just in doing whatever we want. Um, we were made actually for a very unique and specific and glorious and beautiful, incomparably beautiful happiness. And this is the happiness of righteousness. 
So if we look again at verse two, it says this, uh, or I want to ask you as you look at it, where did the righteous man delight? Where did the righteous man delight? He delights in the law of the Lord. He has a happiness and a delight, and it is not just the result of obeying the law of the Lord. It is actually a delight in the law of the Lord. Has that ever resonated with you? Does that sound strange? His delight is in the law of the Lord. As we read through the Psalms, we see this constantly where there's this longing, this thinking, this pleasure in enjoying God and his law, that it is actually a beautiful thing uh, to all the Psalm writers, that they are celebrating this law. And this word law means in in Hebrew that this was written is Torah, uh, the Torah. Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, if you have any Jewish friends or familiar with Judaism, the Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament. It wasn't just the law uh, as in the legal commands that God gave, but it actually is the whole revelation of God's character and his promises in the first five books of the Old Testament. And that's what this writer would have had as his Bible at that time. He would have had the Torah. Uh, and and it's, he says, as I look and meditate on his word day and night, man, I'm filled with delight. It causes me to want to think on it day and night. What do you think about day and night? What fills your mind day and night? What is the first thing you think about when you wake up? Well, this righteous man, for him, it's God's character and his promises revealed in the Torah. And he delights in the law of the Lord. The happiness of the Christian life is a very unique and specific happiness that Jesus came to give us. And it is a happiness in God's law, in God's character, in righteousness. The righteousness of God revealed in Jesus and the righteousness that we get to walk in. Now that next point, the happiness of the righteous life is lasting. It's not only unique, it's not only a specific, it's not only unique in that it's righteousness, it's unique in that it's lasting. Verse three says this, uh, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. I love that line. His leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The righteous man has a rooted, vibrant, and lasting life. It says its leaf does not wither. I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, it just feels like I'm withering. You know, do you ever feel like you're just barely hanging on? And, and this psalm tells us that as we pursue righteousness, we develop this uh, lasting happiness that our leaf does not wither. But whether you might be a Christian in here and you're like, but, but really, Ryan, like, really, is that true? Uh, how can this be? How can we honestly say that that we prosper in everything we do uh, and our leaf does not wither uh, when we look at Jesus, the most righteous man who ever lived, and he's crucified? Jesus suffered greatly. Uh, Suffering wasn't a thing that wasn't in his life, but his life was characterized. He was called the man of sorrows. And so you might say, well, he suffered for us. Uh, He took the penalty of our sin on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. And that's gloriously true. But there's another reality is that Jesus told us that those who follow him would suffer. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. It's uh, John 15, 7. Jesus says this. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. He says, if you follow me, the persecuted righteous man, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. And that's just what happened. If you've studied church history at all, if you've read uh, the New Testament at all, um, you know that the early church was greatly persecuted. That, that these Christians, it, it, becoming a Christian actually cost them something. They could lose their lives. They didn't live in a, a free society like we live in. Um, and many of these Christians, just like Jesus, were crucified. Some crucified upside down. Some were fed to lions. 
Like this was what it was like to follow Jesus in the early days. Uh, this is what happened to Paul, the man who wrote a large portion of our New Testament in the scriptures. Uh, he, he suffered greatly, and this is what he says. Uh, I want to read uh, from, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. This is what Paul says of his life. This, is, this man is following Christ, he's proclaiming Christ, and this is how he describes his life. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs, not to, God, or belongs to God and not to us. This power he's talking about is the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's talking like, I'm like a jar of clay to show that it's his power and not mine. But follow this, this is what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How is that prospering? How is that a leaf that does not wither? Well, skip down to verse 16. It says this. Uh, so we do not lose heart. This is Paul in the same train of thought. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that sounds kind of like withering. Uh, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, that's what he's calling these sufferings, these persecutions, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul says, there's purpose in this suffering. And while it looks on the outside like I'm wasting away, inside I'm being renewed day by day. Elsewhere, Paul says in Romans 28, he says that all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things. This is a man who is being persecuted. This is a man whose friends are being killed for the sake uh, of Christ, uh, killed because of the gospel that they're preaching. And he says every in my life is being worked together for my good. Really, Paul, all things? And he says, in everything I do, I prosper. For the righteous man, everything becomes prospering because God is working it all together for our good. But this is not the case for the wicked. This is not the case for the wicked. Read verse four uh, through six. It says, The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a vivid picture here, a vivid contrast. We've got this rooted tree with vibrant life, and then we've got chaff. Uh, driven away by the wind. If you know what chaff is, it's, it's this thing that when, when you would take wheat and they were separating wheat from chaff so they could collect all the wheat, they could throw it up in the threshing floor and the wind would blow away the chaff. And, and this idea is that the wicked person is just being driven by life, separated and blown away. There is a deep instability in wickedness. Uh, there is a deep instability in a life apart from God. It it takes a lot of energy trying to be our own God. It it takes a lot of energy constantly chasing happiness in this thing or this thing. And then you get it in spending all of your energy trying to control your scenario so that you don't lose that. Or maybe you just try to silence the reality in the back of your mind that all of this could be gone with a phone call. All of this could be gone in an instant. It's not that there's no happiness, that there's no delight in wickedness. No, we pursue it because we delight in it. That's why we go to sin. It's tempting. And yet the temptation leaves us bare. If not now, give it time. If not now, give it time. Wickedness has no shelf life. Every perceived benefit, every perceived benefit will become uh, 
a great negative in time, whether by us losing it and it leaving us bare, whether by us having it for a while and realizing that it can't satisfy the deep longings that we were made to have satisfied by God, or as this text says, at the judgment, that there is a day that we're gonna stand before God and our wickedness is not gonna do us any good. As the righteous life uh, builds up this eternal weight of glory, uh, Jesus says, uh, says, happy are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Rejoice and be glad in that day, for great is your reward. That there is this internal reward. There's this thing that happens as we pursue righteousness, even in the midst of suffering, and just the opposite happens in wickedness. Just the opposite happens with sin. There is this eternal weight of wrath and justice as we stand before God. Uh, the Bible says that, that, that we will have to give an account for the deeds done in the body. We need a happiness that we can depend on. We need something that's gonna last. We need a happiness that will continue to be the same happiness we partake in in eternity. Because your sin, the thing that you delight in now, like if, if, if you are with the Lord in heaven, uh, you won't be doing that thing. Uh, in some way, righteousness is like prep for the joys of heaven. That joy is uh, what heaven encompasses. That we live lives of joy for eternity. Uh, and those specific, unique, lasting joys, uh, as we pursue righteousness in this life, we are getting to experience the future joys in the present. We need a joy that's going to last. We need a happiness that is going to last. And so this brings us to a question. Well, if the happiness that I was made for is this unique happiness in righteousness, that's the only lasting happiness that there is, what do I do if I don't, I don't delight in righteousness? What do I do if I look inside and I find in myself a drawing towards wickedness? What, if, what do I do if the things that I love are the things that God says he doesn't? What do I do? And this is the best part. This is the best part. The righteousness of life, the righteous life in all of its happiness is a costly gift. The righteous life in all of its happiness is a costly gift. Look at verse six again, the beginning of it. It says this, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What is the way of the righteous? What is the way of the righteous? If the Lord knows this way and the other way will perish, well, what's the way? What is this way? And I want to tell you uh, something that Jesus said in John 14, 6, and I love this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them this. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is that, Jesus? No one comes to the Father except through you. But what about the way? He knows the way of the righteous. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the Psalm 1 man. There is no other Psalm 1 man. If you take Psalm 1 and you say, I'm just going to try to muscle my way into this, you will fail. Jesus is the way. He is the Psalm 1 man. And Christians believe this. We believe that we have been accepted not based on our own righteousness, but based on the righteousness of the Psalm 1 man, Jesus Christ. If you are in here and you have believed that Christianity was about fixing yourself up and just trying to be good enough to get into heaven, hear Jesus say to you, I am the way, the only way is through me. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the good news that we proclaim week in and week out. And that gift, that gift of righteousness, that we get Jesus's righteousness, uh, what we call imputed righteousness, that it gets accredited to our account, that gift was costly. That gift came at a price that 2,000 years ago, God loved the world so much that he sent 
Jesus, his only begotten son, to live the righteous life of someone that you couldn't live, to die in your place, the penalty that you deserved to, to take. On the cross, we see a picture of how bad our wickedness is, that that's what it cost, that justice demands a payment, and that was the payment, and yet we see that he was willing to make that payment for you. He was willing to get on that cross for you. This is the good news of Christianity. But there's more. There's even more than this forgiveness. You might have noticed I said the righteous life is a costly gift. The righteous life in all of its happiness is a costly gift. And I picked those words carefully. The righteous life is part of the gift. Not just being declared righteous by Jesus, but that Jesus' salvation that he offers, the imputed righteousness that we receive, the accreditation of Jesus' righteousness to our account was actually not just to save us from sin's penalty, but it was actually to save us from sin's power as well. That Jesus didn't just purchase your pardon, but he purchased your transformation. This is part of the gift, and this is the end goal of your, of your salvation. That at the end of history, when Jesus comes back, one day we will be made like him. And until that day, the Christian life is a continual growing into this righteousness that we're going to get to enjoy for eternity. We were made to partake in the very love of God as receivers, recipients, getting it completely free, completely undeserved, and giving it away completely free, completely unreserved. This is the Christian life, and it is beautiful, and it is costly. So maybe you're asking this, okay, so what is righteousness, right? Like what, if I'm gonna pursue this gift, if Jesus didn't just purchase for me uh, my forgiveness, but he purchased for me the ability to actually grow in righteousness, in, to, to, to grow into his image in this life, free of the fear of condemnation, knowing that when I sin, I can bring it to him and I'm forgiven. Uh, if he purchased my transformation, well, what am I being transformed into? What does it look like to actually live this thing out. So in the New Testament, we're, we're coming to our, our end in, in this sermon, but in the New Testament, uh, righteousness is, uh, Jesus is asked basically to sum up the law of God, to sum up the commands of God. What, what's the greatest commandment? And he's asked, that, he's asked this question, he gives this answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That the greatest commandment is to love God. The greatest commandment is to love God. And he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the righteousness we grow into. Love. Love. Uh, and, and that love is a very uh, specific love. It's not just a wishing for people to have just a general happiness in nothing. It's, a, it's an experience of the great joy of being loved by the righteous one and getting to walk in that righteousness and then having tasted and seen the best thing in the universe, bringing other people in to partake of the thing they need more than anything, the happiness that they were made for. The righteous life is part of of the gift, and it's beautiful. And so as we close, I just wanna, uh, I, I wanna speak to, to two uh, possibilities, two different people in here. Maybe uh, you're in here and you're hearing this and this is amazing, you've never heard anything like this good news, uh, that Jesus actually loves you, that he, that he knows your sin more than you do and his response is to die for you, that he loves you that much. Uh, and if you've never given your life to Jesus, I just wanna invite you to do that. Like you could do that today. You could receive the gift. Don't leave this place not receiving the gift that Jesus died so that you could have. Receive it today. The way you receive that is by putting your faith in a new Lord. 
uh, in a new ruler of your life. It's, it's a transfer of kingdoms, that you've been living in this kingdom of darkness, pursuing happiness in sin and apart from the will of God. And when we repent, when we turn to Jesus, it's saying, I'm leaving my citizenship in this kingdom. I'm putting my faith in you, and I'm submitting to a new Lord. I'm putting my faith in you, and I'm receiving you as my righteousness. You are my only hope, and I want to be in your kingdom. And Jesus says, come into my kingdom. Come to me in faith. Put your trust in me as your Lord and Savior, and I'll take care of you. We'll get to the righteousness part. Just come to me. Just come to me. I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. So I want to invite you today. If you've never done that, when we're responding later, just do that. Like, go, just, all you've got to do is pray to him and say, Lord, uh, I, I confess my sins. Some, like, I confess that I haven't been living for you. Would you please give me that gift? I want that gift. I want to put my faith in you. Show me how to live this life. Save me from my sins. And it's, it's that beautiful. It's that free. And it's that easy. Just giving your life to the Lord who wants to give you the happiness that you were made for in him. But, but some of us in here, we've already done that. We're, we're Christians, and I just want to give you some practical application. What does this look like in our lives on a daily basis? Spirit and truth. Uh, we see these two elements in the passage. Uh, Jesus once uh, spoke uh, to his disciples, and he said uh, that he spoke of the Holy Spirit that we would receive when we put our faith in Jesus, and that it is like a river of life that just flows out of you. Uh, this lady was drinking from a well in, in, in he, in, at one point and uh, trying to get water, and he says, I'll give you water that never runs dry. That constantly Jesus is describing this Holy Spirit, God dwelling in us, this person of God who is also the power of God for us. Uh, he dwells inside of us. And the Bible tells us that this righteous, life-giving stream produces our righteousness. And so we see in the text that this man is like, he's rooted, and he's, he's rooted as a tree next to streams of water. And the life of God that pours into us and builds this fruit of the Spirit is what we call it, this righteousness in our lives. This fruit comes from abiding in Christ and depending on this spirit. And so dependence for the Christian really looks like prayer. What does what your prayer life look like? As I've been preparing for this, I've been convicted. I, uh, there is an obvious difference in my life when I am not being uh, persistent in seeking to drink from the waters of the spirit. When I am not persistent in prayer, Prayer is the means of our dependence on the Spirit, prayer and faith. Uh, and so what does your prayer life look like? I don't know if you've ever been in an apple orchard, but um, you know what no successful apple orchard that stayed in business has ever done? No successful apple orchard has ever waited until the harvest to water their trees. Never. Uh, that apple orchard closed down um, if you wait until the need for the fruit of the Spirit, the need for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, if you live your life just constantly waiting for those needs to arise, for you to be patient with your spouse, uh, for you to be kind to a neighbor, for you to be loving in a sacrificial way, if you wait for those needs to arise, arise to, go to, the to go to the river of the Holy Spirit, you're going to find yourself constantly frustrated, constantly running dry. This righteous man is planted. He's planted by the streams of water. Plant your life in prayer. Plant your life in prayer and dependence because Jesus bought you this costly gift of forgiveness and transformation, and that growth happens in your life only in dependence on him. We don't just depend on him for salvation. We depend on him for transformation. So the first thing we need is to depend on the Spirit. And, and another uh, piece in our text, this truth piece, is that this man meditates on the word day and night. That word meditate, uh, it's not like uh, 
meditation in like Eastern meditation or maybe what might be popular in this city of clearing your mind um, and uh, emptying yourself of all of these things. There might be an emptying, but there's, the emptying is replaced with a filling your mind with truth. And this man meditates on the law day and night. Fill your mind with the word of God. Memorize it. Know it so that you can think on it throughout the day and asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see and apply these truths to your lives. That as you think on the word, you'd see the superior glory of righteousness as you look to Jesus. You see his love is the most beautiful thing in the world and as you behold his glory, you're transformed into the same image. Fill your mind with truth and look at Jesus. We become like what we behold as glorious. This is how the change happens. Dependence on the spirit, filling our mind with the word and the spirit and truth comes and Jesus himself shapes us to live and to love like him, to enjoy the gift that we've been given. I'm gonna pray uh, and uh, Brian's gonna come up here in a moment and the band's gonna come up. Um, and uh, he's going to lead us in a time of response. Um, but, but I just want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer for a second um, uh, as I lead us in um, uh, a specific aspect of this. If, uh, if this is your first time to ever hear this good news, I just want to invite you right now to ask the Holy Spirit uh, to, to come into your life, to ask Jesus to save you. Just in the quietness of this moment, just to confess your need for him, and to say, I believe in you. Give me this gift. If you've done that, I want to encourage you to come down here after uh, and speak to a leader. Uh, don't, don't let your salvation be in the dark. We want to celebrate this with you. And, uh, and then if you are here and, and maybe you've been drifting from, from reading the word, maybe you've been drifting from pursuing righteousness, maybe you've been comfortable in your sin, uh, and, uh, and you just need to enjoy the gift that he bought for you. Just to ask him to move in that way in your heart, to let you enjoy the righteousness, the joys of loving like him, partaking in his love. Father God, I, I thank you thank you that you love us so much that you didn't leave us in our wickedness, that as the way of the wicked will perish, uh, we do not perish, and we are no longer wicked if we've trusted in you, that you, if you looked down at us in our brokenness and you had compassion on your enemies. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being our righteousness. I pray, Lord, that this week as we go out, uh, that we would grow in righteousness, that we would pursue this gift and we would experience all that you have for us. We love you. We need you. We can't live without you. And we're so thankful we don't have to try. It's in Jesus' name we pray.